Hello everyone. On today's podcast we have Graham Bemis. Graham is an artist as well as how I would describe a social philosopher, um, which we definitely get into. Uh, you can follow his artwork at Pawn Takes King on Instagram. It's both thought-provoking and uh, quite quite impressive. So be sure to check that out. Um, also be sure to like, share, subscribe comment on this podcast so we can continue to uh, to grow our audience. Thank you very much and enjoy. Uncut, uncensored and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm probably wrong about everything. All right, Graham, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on your show, Robert. You're, you're welcome. Yeah, well, I, we have a mutual friend, uh, Travis. That's right. Who, yeah, yeah. And, you know, our, our show isn't very big, but, uh, you know, he's one of our fans and uh, one of the few. And he was, he was telling me about you and your, and your artwork. And, uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, we got to have him on. So thank you for being here today. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your artwork? Sure, sure. Uh, first, I'd just like to say thanks to you again, and, and thanks to Travis, our mutual friend. Great guy. We've been training in jiu-jitsu together, and, and he's just a really, really, he brings really good energy to everything he does. So thanks, Travis. I agree. Um, so in, in speaking to the art, I suppose for me, it's, it's like any creative endeavor that we adopt. It's something that I've been using to say things that I don't really have a, a way of saying otherwise. And so it's been a constant companion for me since I was very little. It's been a way I've, I've worked to understand myself and cope with things. And it's now become more of, I think, something that I, I'm using to lean into the kind of learning and the kind of expression I want to do. That is, I want to speak on a political and social level as well. And perhaps we can, we can get into those topics as we go. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, do, would you like to speak to the, the, the sort of the political and social elements? Sure, sure. I, at first, I think I'll, I'll give a bit of a, a bit of context to that, mm-hmm. um, because I think at the moment, it's pretty clear to see that right now it's a cacophony. It's, it's really, really difficult to make sense of any of the information coming through. And uh, just about everywhere you look, there are people sounding off. And I think there's a lot of validity to what's being said, but I think a lot of it is getting lost in the noise as well. And so I also recognize it's a little presumptuous to want to wade into that. It's pretty oversaturated, but I've been working on an ethic to try and navigate this. And as far as I've been able to develop it now, it's always going to be subject to change and being let's say redeveloped, it's this idea that the right thing to do, I think, is almost always the most difficult to do. So for example, if you're a conflict averse person, the last thing you wanna do is step into a situation where you might have to confront somebody or where you're gonna get called out for something. But at the same time, if let's say it's a politically fraught conversation or it's a really intense social issue, 
I'm finding that it's more often than not than people that have a doubt about the situation that I really want to hear from, that I want to hear temper the conversation, not necessarily to dominate it. And then on the other side of things, if you have somebody that's really into argument, the difficult thing for them is going to be to actually practice patience and pull back and allow for a constructive conversation to take place. And I, I'm using that ethic to guide me in my work as an artist now in that I do think it's presumptuous to step into the conversation, into the spotlight. I do think it is presumptuous to think that I may be able to contribute something, but for me, it's also the most difficult thing that I can imagine to be honest and to bear a piece of myself to a massive audience that is going to take and disseminate every little piece of what I do and what I share with them. Does that sort of resonate? Do you feel that in, in your work as a podcaster now? Well, that is such a great question. I mean, tech, my, my job outside of this is I'm, I'm a school counselor. I'm a registered mm -hmm. uh, clinical counselor. And with a name like I'm probably wrong about everything, that that's almost saying to, you know, who the, who the hell am I to be a counselor then? It's like, you know, but really when we put things out there, it's almost like there's, there's such a lot, there's a faceless, it's certainly not voiceless, but it is faceless and it just wants to tear you down. And it's, you know, is that the, is that the masses? I don't know. Like some people call it the Twitter mob, but then when you start to isolate these voices and you have conversations like you talked about, then you hear that there, there is some, there's some validity in what they're saying and they're having to think what they say too. Right. And that's why going back to what you said, like I, 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 you know, I still am a yes man, you know, like I try to be an agreeable person. But like you say, conflict or getting into disagreement or whatever that is, boundaries, that's where true growth occurs. If we just agree with everything that everybody else is doing, that's how atrocity happens. When we stop, when we don't say no, right? And that's kind of what I'm doing. That's what I hope to do is, is just to, to generate conversations that, you know, hopefully make people think and certainly make me think right mm -hmm. no and i really appreciate that and that's a big part of the reason why i wanted to speak with you is because of the name of your podcast it implies a deep sense of humility um frankly these days i'm i'm really allergic to almost any certainty at all about mm -hmm. what we're dealing with because you know i think there's a lot of reasons for this that we can get into but one of them for instance might be that social media has sort of gamified our attention spans and it's made reaction the big part of the mechanism for the, the coin of the round, let's say. And so as a result, it's not allowing for a nuanced discussion. I mean, there's nothing that's less sexy right now than say breaking down an issue and trying to see what nuance actually, uh, how that actually manifests in a situation because it's really it's not black or white and it's really difficult to discuss these topics but i think it's easier to use a sound bite it's quick to go to a reaction but i think in no way does that actually help us get to the core of the issue 
it's good for social signaling. I don't think we should discount that, but I don't think it's the same. If I can go off on a little bit of a tangent. Please do. There's, um, I think, a lot about the situation that we're in and the big problem being that we're having trouble making sense of it, right? We don't have a, a sense-making apparatus. But we also don't really have a, a clear delineation delineation in our, our media, our public square, which is now online. You know, it's all one big argument room. We don't have a separate room for constructive conversations on topic X or Y. It's just open season for everything. And I'd be very curious to see what would happen if we actually did set aside different sectors for conversation and actually practice, hmm, let's say, gatekeeping in good faith. So assuming everybody is intending to bring something useful and constructive to the table, but also being aware of the possibility that there may be bad actors. On, on going on that, it, and I've talked to people about this, and it seems like the loudest voices are the most extreme, which probably comes as no surprise. But the moderate voices, such as yourself, and you're speaking of, you know, that we need, we need places to just have conversations, but that, you know, there's the, the trolls or whatever you want to call them that just shoot things down and go for this emotional reaction. But, but the number it's, you know, the old saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? The number might be small of how many people do that, but they're, they're powerful, right? in their presence. They're, they're just so loud. And, and I'll speak for myself. Anybody who knows me from, you know, I used to, I used to be like a heavy partier and like just pretty much an idiot. And I was the loudest person in the room. And when I look back at that, I'm like, Oh my God, like that's so embarrassing. And it was because if I'm being honest with myself, I just wanted people to look at me, but I didn't really want them to look at me. If you kind of get what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I do. Um, so I guess I'm curious. I, I wanted to ask you about, uh, do you do you ever go into, say, Jungian psychology or shadow psychology? Is that something you're familiar with? I know I know a little bit about it. The, the odd thing is, is that we often practice things that, you know, we don't even know what we're practicing, but go, go on. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Um, thank you. And also thank you for sharing. Uh, I think that is actually a... a it's a theme certainly that resonates with me. There is a tremendous amount of acting out unconscious themes, looking for, for ways to, to get attention or to have needs met when it didn't otherwise seem possible. And it's not really until you become aware of those patterns that you actually decide whether or not you want to change them or if they're serving you really. Um, it's again, something I've come back to with trying to make sense of the situation that we're in and, and using the ethic that I mentioned, that being that the most difficult thing is the right thing to do. Hmm. What I've found, especially where the conversation is concerned and the fact that the loudest voices dominate, I wonder why that was the case. And just as you mentioned at the start of the podcast, this idea that it was this idea that doing the acting 
in the world acting in these conversations everybody wants to be on the right side of history and we can very easily walk ourselves into a very bad situation you know the old phrase uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions i'm finding that more and more to be the case and most especially where let's say a lot of social movements are concerned now at least as far as i can see and i may certainly be wrong about this it's the people that believe that they're incapable of evil or even doing mm. something bad that are actually the most likely to express that and i have recognized that behavior pattern in myself when i was younger of course like a lot of people i wanted to believe that i was capable of doing very very good things and i wasn't so capable of doing bad things and it was actually through doing volunteer work that i recognized oh i'm not actually as moral as i think i am i would catch myself thinking why aren't people noticing me doing these things or i would catch myself looking at the people i was volunteering with and thinking like if you could just bootstrap yourself this situation would would improve and i would start to find myself blaming and it wasn't until i began examining that that i realized i'm actually capable of doing some pretty terrible things because it's a short fall from thought and from speech to action and we know how bad things can get where that's concerned and so the ethic that i keep thinking about now is what's the right thing to do overall and going into what i mentioned earlier that jungian shadow psychology if we are our conscious minds and the unconscious mind or at least an aspect of the unconscious mind is your shadow it's the part of you that you don't recognize as yourself like an iceberg there's the tip yeah 100 gotcha. yeah um the shadow generally contains all of those pieces that we don't recognize as ourselves and we don't want to recognize as ourselves it might be an aspect of you that's capable of abusing others it might be an aspect of you that's capable of behaving in a really greedy fashion and putting yourself before others whatever that is if we aren't able to find a way to embody that and to recognize it for what it is it'll find other ways of acting itself out and i think that's what we're seeing on the large scale right now as we've digitized more and more things it's the internet's done a beautiful job of just acting as a mirror for our collective psyche and more and more i find those of us that aren't well versed in how to practice awareness we're becoming reactionary and we're becoming more oh. more and it's okay my wife ah sorry you need a key okay special guest appearance <laughs> sorry about that yeah that's all Wait. good that's all good um and so unless you're able to recognize that you're capable of these things you'll find ways of doing this you won't even be consciously aware that you're doing it the internet being a mirror for the collective collective psyche i think is is a great example of that um in that that is where you see these louder voices dominating the conversation in a lot of spaces and like do, do you sort of see this playing out so just to paraphrase just because i was i was listening and then mm -hmm. 
no one's fault, but it broke my concentration. So I want to make sure that I'm hearing this. So with the internet, there's this, there's this chance to get like wrapped up in what is being projected almost like, like a, like a wave takes in all the sand kind of a, poor analogy maybe but when a wave crashes on the ocean it like picks up water and to make it more powerful is that kind of what you're saying that there's a there's like a snowball effect that's a better way of looking yeah, at I, it. I think we can take and adapt that it's almost like i really love this term in physics this uh, this idea of interference pattern if you see a bunch of ripples on the surface of a pond you know that that mm -hmm. might be an interference pattern um it's it's really easy to get lost in the noise um I don't know if you've ever listened to any of uh, Eric Weinstein's lectures. He's a, he's a mathematician and a physicist and an economist. Brilliant very, guy, very yeah. interesting cat. Yeah. yeah, very brilliant. And he has this lovely phrase, which is something like, we are now gods, but for the wisdom. And Wow, because of how powerful we are. Exactly. And yet we lack that love. We lack whatever would help us to actually control the use of that technology instead we're finding all of these ways to express things and to distract ourselves. And the more we do that, the less able we are to actually stop and act and take stock of how we are actually polluting things. I, th I think in a way, just like we can pollute the physical world, we can pollute our, our thought space. Hmm. And, and we do that when we don't actually practice mental hygiene, when we don't stop and make ourselves aware of what we're doing. So I, I think because it's the most difficult thing I can imagine to face your shadow and to recognize what unconscious patterns you have and where they might be uh, expressing themselves, it appears to me to be the right thing to do. And it's also the most difficult, which is why we don't see much of it being done. At least we're not aware of it because again, the conversation is dominated by noise. Hmm. Okay, you've raised, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. You know, uh, you've just brought up, when I was in university, I studied the Holocaust. And uh, which, this might be a bit of a stretch, but it makes me think of, and I don't know if this is a quote, but there are no evil people. There are no good people. There are only people. And the Holocaust was done by everyday people. You know, Hitler just said, you know, kill all the Jews. But it was, he didn't kill any Jews per se. He just authorized it. Meanwhile, everyday people, people who were neighbors to Jewish people, they just turned on them like that. And it was almost like a survival instinct. And, and you, you look at certain experiments in psychology and there's one, it's like the prisoner experiment. I don't know if that's the right name. The Stanford prison experiment, yeah. Is that the one where the professor is like, just keep administering shocks and they do? That was uh, that was a different experiment. I'm I'm blanking on the name right now, but um, I know the one that you're talking about, yeah. and it was to establish how far people are willing to go when they listen to an authority figure. Yeah, mm -hmm. and 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 they just kept, and, and even afterwards, they were like, like people couldn't believe that how susceptible we are to authority. Mm -hmm. And Goebbels said, who was the minister of. Uh, uh, for Hitler in terms of communication or whatever, mass media, essentially. He said that if you can appeal to people's emotions, 
you will make them do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And then we look at some of the things that are going on on the internet. And like you said, it's not so much the rational part of the brain. It's the emotional part that is responding to so much of this. Mm, I think that's an excellent point. And I'm looking it up right now. It was the Stanley Milgram experiment. Um, that was the shock experiment. Right. Um, and so that would be, that would be something I'm, I'm most interested in these days because I'm, I'm trying to find what the root of so much of this turmoil is. And it might be convenient that we don't understand our own, we don't really understand ourselves, you know, the, the unconscious and the subconscious, it's a fairly big question mark. And so it's easy to want to look into that place and say, that might be what contains the answer. Um, at least it's, it's a working theory or a hypothesis right now for me, but I think that was a really good line that you dropped that there's not good people or bad people. There's just people. And I think that's, it's hard for a lot of us to come to grips with it because it dissolves the idea of the other. Mm. And the other is the only person that we're allowed to reject or, or possibly harm. We're, we don't harm in-group members, but we harm the other. Wow. And so that's, that's what's possible, or that's what you have to let go of when you actually recognize that you have something in common with these people, these, these divides everywhere. There's, a, there's another quote that I really liked by Freud, and he, he takes a lot of flack, but he had a line that went something like, if, if age could, if youth knew. Mm. And I think that line is, is pretty fairly accurately sums up a lot of what's going on now in that we have a huge generational gap. But I think more than that, it isn't just the, uh, a physical time gap. It's the mind isn't restricted to time. We have old minds and young minds and they might be in young bodies and old bodies. You know, it's, it's irrelevant. Um, but these, these gaps will continue to grow for as long as we find ways to other each other. And I'm not making, I'm trying not to make that sound flippant because I, I recognize at least the premise that I, I would like to approach this with is the idea that things are exactly as difficult as you would imagine they'd have to be in order for them to be as they are. Because people by and large generally aren't weak. We, we might find the path of least resistance. This is just my perspective. But by and large, we've overcome tremendous difficulties and challenges just to arrive at this place in, in our history. It's not been an accident that we've overcome genocide, overcome uh, mm. famines, floods, disease, corruption, you know, you name it. We've, we've all come through these things and we all retain a genetic memory of these things. And that's what we need to call into effect in order to overcome some of the challenges. But um, I, I know it's difficult, but I, I can't really imagine another way to do this. I, I, a lot of people like Joe Rogan, for instance, continue to... I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he promotes this idea of the technological advance 
taking us to the other side of this, you know, call it the, uh, uh, the singularity or what have you, but right. I don't, I don't think that's going to carry us there unless we actually develop a, a, a kind of wisdom necessary to hold it. I think there's uh, there's a guy, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. His name is Daniel Schmachtenberger. Are you familiar no, with him? No. He, he came on the Portal podcast with Eric Weinstein recently, and he's the co-founder of something called Neurohack, and he also does a lot of work in existential risk and he works in game theory, which okay, is adopted, yeah. right? Yeah, game theory being adopted for mathematics, trying to look at people and behaviors and, and studying them from the perspective that they act as rational actors and that we all participate in a series of games. Those might be finite and infinite games. These might be cooperative and non-cooperative. But basically, if you break things down in that fashion, you can begin to start to understand the incentives whereby people might act in a certain way or they might stop acting a certain way. Um, and he does a really, really good job of explaining how and why we're functioning the way that we're functioning now, why our sense-making apparatus isn't functioning properly. But he also does a great job of explaining ways that we might be able to fix it. So he's proposed an idea that's being developed by a great many minds called game B. The implied meaning okay. being that we're playing the, game A. This is game yes, B. Game yeah. B. And and the way it basically works is as he describes it, if you have any system that has rivalry involved, competition between you or me or you and our neighbor, whoever, if there's rivalry involved in a system, and you develop technologic, technologically, eventually over time, that combination will result in one or all of you self-extinguishing. So game B is the idea that we can take and use what we have in game A, but we eliminate the chance for rivalry. And you create it in such a way that by comparison to game A, it basically outperforms it. It doesn't impose itself on others. It advertises itself in such a way that you have no choice if you want to succeed as a species, technologically, monetarily, however you want to define it. The only way for you to succeed fast enough is to adopt game B voluntarily. It basically exists to make game A obsolete. So this is an idea that is being worked on as a, as a proposed solution to a lot of the issues that we're facing now. You know, it's kind of the idea of Einstein said, you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that you use to create it. So game B is kind of, kind of where that fits in. Dude, I am totally vibing with what you're saying. So cheers to you. Cause, cause I was talking to, uh, a military veteran in my previous podcast and we, and there was some internet issues and it kind of ended on me saying like, you know, talk about COVID and how it came from like COVID didn't stop at borders, which goes into game B because in game a we're playing the GDP game. We're in constant competition. And what is the end point of this seemingly, is it an infinite game, a, a finite game? 
But then you watch shows like Star Trek and yeah, it's sci-fi and, but it's like earth is kind of unified. If you ever watch that show. I love Star Trek. Yeah. And, and it's like, okay, is that where we need to go? Because at this rate, it doesn't matter if you're the United States of America, you're Canada or you're, you know, uh, Meridus. I'm not saying that country, right. But we are all on a pathway for an abrupt end, right? Because the things that are happening on the earth, they don't care about boundaries. COVID doesn't care about boundaries. So we do have to find a unified front. I just realized I didn't plug in my computer. So, so well, I but, think that's a really, really excellent idea that, yeah, I, th I think nothing less than total voluntary conscious decision-making is going to see us through. I think you're right. We've been exceedingly lucky up to now. It, it's really been luck. Like I, when you start listing off the possibilities, Yellowstone blowing up, asteroidal impact, you know, we passed the Perseid meteor stream twice a, uh, is it twice a year? Some astronomical amount of luck has gone into keeping things as they are. And that's before you even include all the social problems that we can, we can promote ourselves, you know, uh, again, to keep coming back to Eric Weinstein, he does make the excellent point that the nuke problem really never went anywhere. It, you know, we've always kept that problem in a, in a, it's all potential energy right now. And it, be, it becomes kinetic as soon as we get just a little stupider. You know, I, I, I don't know if you've ever actually looked at how they run the sending out of the, the nuclear codes. There was actually a theorist a little while ago that I read about. He actually proposed that they have a volunteer in the White House who has surgically Im implanted in him. You've read about this. He has to be killed. Yeah, he has to be killed by yeah. the president if he wants to access the codes. And it's, it's an outlandish sounding idea, but you need something outlandish as a defense if you're going to be considering something outlandish as an action, which is, I think, a way of paraphrasing the logic behind it. Um, so I think as far as I can tell, that's where we find ourselves right now. We have everything we need to succeed if we can conceptualize the problem and work cooperatively. And that brings us to the next problem, which is how how do you find a way to help people to be cooperative in this situation when almost everything we're incentivized to do is, is the opposite, at least in the short term? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's a giant question. I know. Yeah. I mean, and, and obviously I don't have the answer, but here's the thing that, if we look at history and you make such a wonderful point of we haven't had the means to completely wipe each other out, you know, like that's extremely new. That's 60 years old. What, 70 years old, 1940, you know, I'm not good at math, mm -hmm. but the ability to destroy the earth from, you know, our hands is a relatively new thing. And we've gotten very lucky. And what you're proposing and what I'm totally a proponent of is that, we have to take the power is in this many, like, you know, the world is 
8 billion people, something like that, and growing. But the power of the world is only in such a, like a, the 1%. So what we need is, is what we're saying that the 1% has to relinquish power so that, it, like, how, how does that, how does that work? Because the people in the, with the power, they don't want to give it up. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. I, I think it is tricky, but I like the way we've approached this so far in that there's a lot of room for speculation right now. And I, what I would like to see, at least in the dialogue, as much as I want answers, I want to see people who recognize that they don't have all of them and that right. there isn't enough time to sift through the information to find the right ones. This is actually why we need each other. We don't have the mental bandwidth to be able to hold everything together. We have to outsource to one another. I mean, we can talk about something like Musk's neural link idea, which may actually be necessary in the next little while. But until then, we have only ourselves to be able to guard against all the issues that we're facing. But I'm not, I'm not so sure that it, we all depend on the 1% relinquishing this so much in that I, I'm trying to look at the point of the individual at the point that anybody has agency, that's where we have to start. Right. It's to me also the most compassionate place because not everybody can do everything, but everybody can do something in their, in their circle. And I'd like to imagine, like I, I do fall back on Star Trek a lot. The next generation is one of my favorite shows. And it was because they actually did a good job. I think, of approaching this idea of the philosopher king which i guess would be picard and using a lot of stoic philosophy but they also addressed a ton of social issues really complicated problems that don't have a clear answer now granted the show the ep episodes last an hour so they find the solution in that time frame but throughout you had this sense that they'd moved past a lot of the issues that we have somebody once asked one of the creators of the old Star Trek show, you know, if this is so futuristic, wouldn't they have come up with a cure for baldness already? And the creator of the show, I don't want to say the name because I don't want to misquote this. He said something like, by then they wouldn't care, hmm. which I thought was a beautiful idea. There, There's so much now that we care about that you can imagine we would get rid of if we, if we do wind up getting beyond this point. You know, virtue signaling, for instance. Why do you care about this? Well, it's a form of social capital. It's a way of, of showing yourself that you have, uh, let's say, weight within the community. But ultimately, if we had what we needed, that wouldn't be the case. You know? To refer to um, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, this is a, there's a lot of speculation around this idea. It's changed. He actually never included a, a, a pyramid in his actual conception of the structure of your needs but basically and, and i'm sure you've recognized this as well once you become proficient somewhere let's say um i'm not sure if you're if you've done martial arts but let's let's say podcasting for instance the more you're doing this the more confident you are in your ability to do this you practice self-doubt i'm sure and you you try to look at what you can improve on but as you continue to do this, you don't need feedback from me to tell you you're doing a good job. 
you know, you recognize this by what you're doing and, and through the feedback from your listeners. And I think so too goes for many of the social issues that were, let's not say social issues, let's say a lot of the games that we're playing now socially, once you actually find a way to get what you need, you won't, we won't play these necessarily. I, I don't want to I don't want to take anything off the table because I think the full human being is just that there will probably be something for everything. You know, everything appears to fractionate. It, every every TV show is just an offshoot of original idea that 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 was an offshoot of a an even earlier idea. And and I think that'll there'll be room for this. But back to the matter at hand, I think it's healthy humans that are going to be the ones to make the decisions to get through this. What, going back to what you said, the way that we've got ourselves into this is not the way that we will get ourselves out of this. And the thinking has to change. Hmm. And, you know, like, I, there should be more people like you like the way that you think and, and your way to sort of, let's not be so judgmental. Let's be critical. Let's be critical thinkers. And I'll be honest when I look and I'm an educator or wasn't, edu- yeah, I, I, I'm an educator, but when I grew up, I don't remember there being much in terms of critical thinking, right? It was more just remember these facts. What year was Canada a country? You got to know that versus you know, why our countries or, you know, where are we going? These big questions. And it wasn't until I started taking philosophy in grade 11, mm-hmm. shout out to uh, Mr. Thornton, the best teacher of all time, that it was like, wait a second. What, like the why? We need to ask ourselves that. Why are we doing this? Why are we working our nine to five jobs if we don't like them? There's a quote from a, a, a and again, you know, I'm probably getting this all wrong, but there's a, a Muslim poet named Rumi. And he said that yesterday I was smart and I thought I could change the world, but today I'm wise and I can only change myself. Mm. And I think that's the key is that we need to focus on ourselves. That's a beautiful quote. I, I really do enjoy Rumi's poetry. And I think you're also right about that. And I think that's also where this becomes difficult too, because it's not until you actually start doing the work and you start meditating and you start trying to explore, let's say your your traumatic history or your family's traumatic history or why you've had a falling out with this person that you actually recognize. This is pretty difficult work to do. You You certainly aren't transparent to yourself you don't know why many of the decisions you make are the decisions you make. And you don't choose your preferences. It's a very strange thing, isn't it? You can't actually modulate how you feel about something unless you know, you're know you doing it over time and you're recognizing you get better at it. We tend to enjoy things we're better at, I find, but it, it is very, very hard work. And it's also, I think, a, a beautiful thing in that when you start doing it, you do recognize how hard it is. You start to have compassion for other people and you recognize how difficult it is for them to carry themselves. And, and you become a little bit more forgiving, I think, when somebody slips up, let's say gets angry in traffic. I know I do that a lot. But it's 
coming closer to these ideas and particularly very terrifying and troubling ideas that I think you actually start to find the motivation and the compassion and the understanding for why we are the way that we are and for the reason that we should try and work for something better. If you've stopped and, and, and I'm sure you have, you look at a lot of the thinking that people do on their deathbed. There's a line from Terrence McKenna and he said something like the most important thing in life is to make things just a little bit easier for other people. And at least to my younger self, I don't think I would have fully grasped it until after a near death experience and, and a couple of challenges. It's only after those things that I begin to really recognize the meaning of something like that. And of course there's more to unpack. There always will be. Well, you talk about, you know, what is the intent? And you talk about intent and you talk about meditation. Our world does not want us to be mindful. It wants to keep you distracted. It wants to keep you, you know, on that A to B pursuit journey, whatever it's, it's, you know, it really is a rat race. And I think that is just where so much of our anxiety, our depression, our angst, our anger. And, you know, I, I experience those things personally. That's where it comes from is that we really are not in, there's been many times that I'm really not enjoying the journey. I'll speak for myself. I'm not enjoying the journey. There's been times in my life when I'm like, I just want to get there. And then I get there and I'm like, where did all the time go? Right? And that scares me that our lives just go like that. I mean, really, this last decade feels like, you know, it was like, where did all the time go? Like, is time accelerating? What's going on here? Is it because I'm not being mindful? Oh, that. There's a lot in there that I actually resonate with. And first of all, I appreciate you sharing that. It's it's a funny thing that happens, I think, because so much of our so much of us, myself especially, is averse to vulnerability. And there's a lot of speakers and writers like Brene Brown, who's written a lot on shame, for instance, who describes the idea that it's really when you're soft, when you're supple, when you're vulnerable, that you're doing the growing, just like a plant. It's not the hardened piece of, of tree bark that's doing a lot of the growing. It's actually the soft little neophyte that's popping up out of the ground that's growing the fastest. And, and so when somebody does share something about themselves, particularly to a large audience, I find that to the degree that you're afraid to do it, that's the degree to which the door swings open and you're able to actually express more of yourself. And especially when another person does this, at least for me, I recognize, oh, this is another mode of expression. This is another thing that I have in common with somebody. And it also begins to degrade that idea of the other, which again is, is difficult to do. And especially if you're ashamed of something and another person expresses it, it takes the air out of it. It takes the pressure out of it. 
it helps you to realize, oh, this is, it's possible to do this and to continue to move. That's, that's another thing I'd love to see now. And I do think it's entering into the public mind that it's possible to not have arrived at a, a solid conclusion. It's possible to sit and say, you know what? I don't have an answer to this thing. I don't feel strongly one way or the other yet. And I don't quite know where I sit in relation to it. Doubt, doubt can be a beautiful thing. It's not something that necessarily I think is a, is a virtue unto itself, but it, it serves growth in a lot of meaningful ways. And I think the more difficult we feel it is to practice that inside of ourselves and outside of ourselves, the more it's a necessary thing. That seems to me to be part of what's holding the equilibrium right now. Well, I think too about, you know, religion and how, you know, rigid it can be, right? And I won't name any specific religions, but it's almost like there's, there's, I believe that there's truth to, you can learn from everything and everybody. Going back to there's 8 billion people on the planet Every single one of us has a story to tell and we're in constant evolution. Very few of us are static, right? And those who we think we're static, they're not. They're always changing, like you say, like the, like the tree. And if anything, it's just in their chronological time. Now, when we are static or rigid or we're firm on something, that becomes the most dangerous place you can be, I think, right? you always have to have an open mind. And I'm reading this book right now by uh, Carol Dweck. Dweck. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Called Mindset. Mm. And she talks about the fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And corporations extinguish themselves because they have a fixed mindset. They're not willing to change. But look at our own human evolution. We have to change. And we can't just, where we are right now, we can't figure it out from our history this takes something new our level of evolution won't be in our muscle mass and our way to kill each other it's going to be in our hearts and our minds right mm. I, I know that sounds flowery or whatever but that's truly what i believe and that comes down to being mindful that comes down to just stopping right that's why i think covid really i mean you know despite the tragic loss of life it's been a bit of like a hey stop for a second this is a chance, right? You can't go to the movie theater. You can't watch the newest episode of whatever on Netflix. You have to stop and think. And I'm not going to lie. When the whole COVID thing happened, uh, you know, I was drinking more than I normally do. I hardly ever drink anymore now. Uh, but it was like, I was trying to distract myself. And I was like, why am I doing this? Because I don't want to do myself work. Hmm. Yeah, honestly, I, I do appreciate the flowery line because we don't, I don't think we hear enough of those. At least I don't, I don't see much of them expressed really authentically in the way that you just did. And that, yeah, it would be, it would be really nice if we, if we found a way to make ourselves more comfortable in this process. And I agree, we're not going to get through this unless we find a way to examine ourselves and get creative with what we have. And I suppose 
if I were to end on something here, because I am trying to be cognizant of the time, mm-hmm. um, it probably would be something like that flowery note that the things worth having are worth working for. And it does involve stepping through something very difficult and something very frightening. And there's many ways to conceptualize it. It's There's not just shadow work and there's not just meditation. There's a ton of different ways to try and examine and cultivate yourself. And if I'm being honest, I think one of the ways in which I've been very lucky is that I've had at least a tiny sense i've had the wherewithal to kind of shoot myself in the foot and check my checkmate myself into a way where learning was the only way i was getting out of something right and i would like to think that it's possible for us to get get through this without placing ourselves in a position where we have no choice but to do the terrifying thing i would hope that there's a way to kind of ease into it but you know who knows it's it's just my hope that we find a way to do this compassionately and to recognize that at least as far as i can tell most people are are generally pretty good people if you handed almost anybody a magic wand at least one of the wishes that they would make would be for something like make life easier for people you know cure disease in the world cure poverty stop corruption, stop wars. That would be at least one wish from almost everybody. I mean, I haven't, there may be evidence to dispute that, but that's not really been my experience. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, life, it it's not a lot of fun if it's just about you, right? And we, you know, there is power in the collective it's not going to be about me. It's going to be about us. Now, we didn't even talk about your art or, or any of the other things. So uh, we're going to have to do this again. Oh, I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, that'll, I'll chalk it up to my bad. I took us way off topic. That's all right. That, like I said, that's, that's the point of this, man. Yeah. So, Walt, Graham, thank you so much. And uh, like I said, we're going to have to do this again because I truly have enjoyed this enriching conversation. It's made me think, so thank you. Well, the feeling. Awesome, okay. Well, you're breaking up a little bit there, but that's all right. (laughs) Okay, man. Take care, guy. You too. All right, everyone. That's our podcast for today. Thanks again to Graham Bemis. Be sure to check out his Instagram at pondtakesking. I've sort of, you know, to be completely honest, this is probably one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever done, and it's certainly left me with a lot to think about. The biggest is the idea of intent and how if we really take time to think about it, we can know our intent and act accordingly. Are we doing something because we want to or because we want something out of it? Why is it that we're doing what we're doing? So... As I go for a little bit of a vacation, and I'll be back in a week, that's something I'm going to think about. What is my intent? Perhaps that's something you can think about too. Thank you for listening, and uh, take care of yourselves. Talk to you soon.